Hello, everyone. This is your Captain Wade speaking, coming from once again in the dry dock, and I am joined again, as always, by my co-host and executive officer, Will. Welcome back, everybody. Yes. So today we are discussing a conflict that is very near and dear to the hearts of most Americans, and this is the American Civil War. And yeah, I know I can hear our Ameri our European listeners already groaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know you hate hearing about the Civil War. It's Americans fighting amongst themselves again, proving that we can't get along. All right, all right. We're going to leave that at the door right now. So the American Civil War has one of the more interesting campaigns that we would see during uh, during the course of its conflict. Of course, we have the amazing and interesting land battles that would happen all over the place and, of course, would culminate in battles like Gettysburg. Of course, the Battle of Fort, Fort Sumter that kicks the whole thing off. And then um, the – I'm trying to remember the name, but it's the – single most bloody battle in the entire uh, history of uh, the American experience, basically. Was, was that uh, Antietam? Antietam might be it, but... I, think, I feel like it was Antietam, yeah. Though I do remember that 23,000 soldiers lost their lives just from the battle alone. Jeez. So, yeah. To say that this battle was bloodshed in the extreme was... I would say that was the understatement of the century. So the Civil War is really, really interesting, but we're going to be talking about the maritime campaigns. Uh, Will is going to be talking about what happened on the oceans, and I'm going to be talking about what happened on the rivers. Yes, the rivers were actually battlegrounds during the Civil War. Kind of hard to believe, but Will, what kind of kicked this whole thing off as far as the Navy was concerned for the Civil War. Yeah, so this is a very interesting conflict, especially because the Civil War introduced a lot of new technologies that hadn't really either been used before in major naval conflicts or were just being invented. And so this led to a lot of really interesting and creative designs and solutions on both sides. So it was interesting to see that play out. Um, in particular, we're going to be talking today about ironclad warships, which are warships that are armored with iron plates. And that, the Civil War is the first time that those were extensively used. Actually, the first warships with iron armor were used, believe it or not, by the Mexican Navy earlier on. But um, the first battle between iron warships occurred in the Civil War. So we're going to be talking about that. There have also been some previous use of the technology in the Crimean War, but it really kind of matured during the Civil War. And a lot of the naval conflicts of the Civil War were driven by the logistics. So uh, obviously both the North and the South had long sea coasts, uh, but they had very different, uh, very, very different economies in terms of what they were depending on. And a lot of the South's economy depended on foreign trade, specifically with their agricultural products like cotton. And in particular, the South had large overseas trading arrangements with particularly the British and also with the French. And so they were going and to be- And Brit again! Yeah, exactly. So they were going to be needing to maintain their lines of trade with England. Obviously, this was not something that the federal fleet wanted to have happen. And so almost right away, 
There was a plan that was devised by the North called the Anaconda Plan. And the idea was to essentially strangle the South's economy by blockading all of their ports. However, this was going to require a large fleet. And at the beginning of the Civil War, the Union Navy was definitely not well-equipped for this operation. As I recall, at the beginning of hostilities, the Union fleet had, I believe, 91 ships in commission, and I think only 45 of them were actually active. The rest were in reserve. So it was not a very large fleet to begin with. It was also significantly smaller than the British Royal Navy and the French Navy. And for quite some time during the early years of the Civil War, there was a legitimate concern that the British and the French would actively enter the conflict on the side of the South. This was something that the Union Navy was not prepared for. Uh, But at the beginning of the war, the Union fleet was all wooden, and it was a mixture of ships that were exclusively sail-powered, many of which were, by this point, quite elderly, some of them dating all the way back to the 1700s, and um, some slightly more modern ships that were a combination of steam and sail. I believe the USS Constitution was still technically in uh in commission and active as a warship at this point she was actually there were several of the original u.s navy vessels were still in commission we're actually going to cover what happened to a few of them uh the most modern warships in the fleet were a group of five steam-powered frigates um and uh these names are going to become famous at least some of them they were referred to as the wabash class So there was the Wabash, the Roanoke, the Colorado, the Minnesota, and a rather particularly famous ship, the Merrimack, which we will cover more about later. So these five ships were the most powerful ships in the fleet, but um, some of them actually weren't in active commission at the time. They were uh, laid up. And then the other modern ships in the fleet were a group of uh, steam sloops. There were seven heavy ones and eight light ones. And essentially, these were slightly smaller ships that still packed a powerful punch with their heavy guns so that was the union uh imagine these uh imagine these heavy and uh light uh you said frigates right will uh sloops 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 uh imagine them kind of as the equivalent of what world war ii would call heavy and light cruisers um yeah i would say it would be be fair to call the yeah it would be fair to call the frigates essentially heavy cruisers and the sloops light cruisers i think would probably be fair in this case. We did have several sailing ships of the line, which were the equivalent of battleships at the time. But interestingly, none of them actually played a major role in Civil War combat operations. And we'll, we'll talk about why that happened in a few moments. However, uh, in contrast, the Confederacy had exactly zero warships in commission at the beginning of the war. Um, And so they were going to have to improvise their fleet. And so they did this in a variety of ways, one of which was rather devious. They had ships ordered from foreign countries under the guise of being merchant ships and a number of them were built in british yards the most famous of these ships which were referred to as confederate raiders were the alabama florida georgia and nashville and shenandoah Uh, the shenandoah famously did not surrender until i believe almost a year after the civil war actually ended because her crew didn't realize the war was over Uh, but these ships were built in foreign yards This, of course, caused great controversy because the U.S. was blaming the British for building warships for the Confederacy, and the British were basically looking the other way and pretending that this wasn't happening. Uh, And then the other sort of aspect was the Confederates tried to home grow their fleet to an extent by um, essentially converting existing paddle steamers and stuff like that into gunboats by basically putting guns on them. 
And then they, of course, were a little bit more creative with some of their other stuff. The Confederates deployed submarines in the conflict uh, for the first time. Actually, the first first submarine was deployed in the Revolutionary War, but the first sort of inklings of the modern submarine came about in the Civil War. And then they also deployed their own ironclads. So we're going to talk about ironclads. Um, but before we get into ironclads, we need to talk about a early major setback for the Union Navy, which is referred to as the Norfolk Navy Yard disaster. And this occurred on April. It can't 20th. be good if it starts with disaster in the name yeah. of the event. Yeah, this was basically the worst day for the U.S. Navy um, before Pearl Harbor, I would say. Um, this this was bad. So it was April 20th, 1861. And uh, the Norfolk Navy Yard in Virginia was the Union Navy's largest naval base. And uh, however, it's in Virginia. And as Virginia had just seceded, the Confederate Army was on the way. And so um, what ended up happening was a complete disaster. Apparently, the guy in charge was Commodore C.S. McCauley who was a veteran of the War of 1812. So as you can imagine, he was getting up there by this point. Um, he apparently was drunk when uh. um, this was going on. And uh, Isherwood, who was an engineer uh, in the U.S. Navy, was essentially rushed to Norfolk and was ordered to get the fleet um, basically to raise steam and escape. But um, nothing was ready to go. The Marines apparently abandoned the post. All the crews that were Southern mutinied. And uh, before the ships could leave, Virginia officially seceded. The Southern Army was closing in. So I guess the only ship that was in any sort of operating condition was a sloop called the USS Pawnee, which was sent in by Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy. We'll talk about him more later to try to figure out what was going on. So the Pawnee shows up with Captain Hiram Paulding in charge. He's, he realizes, okay, the Confederate Army is closing in. None of these ships are ready to go. Some of them don't have crews. This is a disaster. So he ordered the entire Navy Yard blown up and the fleet scuttled. Only one ship of the fleet was able to escape. The Pawnee was able to tow the sloop of war USS Cumberland out of the burning Navy Yard. And we'll hear more about the Cumberland later. So what was lost? The Confederates managed to capture and salvage 300 Dollarin guns, which were the most advanced naval weapons available at the time. The ships of the line, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Columbus, and New York, the four largest ships in the U.S. Navy, were destroyed. The Pennsylvania was the largest ship in the fleet. She carried 136 guns. The frigates Columbia, Raritan, and United States were lost, the United States being the sister ship of the original USS Constitution. The steam frigate Merrimack, which I mentioned previously, the sloops Germantown and Plymouth, and the brig Dolphin. This was a huge blow for the Union Navy. Um, it's kind of hard to understate or hard to overstate how, how bad this was, especially because the Merrimack, being one of the most modern ships in the fleet, was, was lost to the Confederates. And what ended up happening next was pretty interesting. So the Confederates came in and they said, what can we salvage out of this? The Merrimack of the ships that were lost was the only steamship. So she was the most advanced and because she was a wooden ship, when they had put the sh set the ship on fire, she had burned, but only down to the water line, which meant that the hull below the water line and her engines were still intact. And so the Confederates thought, hmm, what can we do with this? And of course, the Union was trying to start their blockade. There were a lot of emergency measures being um, put into place. In particular, uh, 23 gunboats had been ordered called 90 Day Wonders. Uh, they were because they were built in 90 days. 
Um, so anyway, the Union fleet was starting to mobilize to blockade the Confederacy. And so the Confederacy was trying to figure out how to potentially bust this blockade in order to get their trade through to Europe. So a, a development had been occurring overseas in Europe that had been watched by both sides. And this was the development of ironclad warships. There's a little bit of a misconception in the U.S. that the Civil War ironclads that were built by the U.S. were the first. That's actually not true. The first ocean-going ironclad warship was the French steam frigate Gloire, which was built in 1860, so about a year before the Civil War. And then they got ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. French warships of the 1800s were, were interesting looking. Um, and then the British had responded almost immediately with their first two steam frigates uh, that were ironclads, the uh, HMS Warrior and HMS Black Prince. So those were all already um, entering service at this time. So the Confederates took a look at this and they said, well, the best way for us to break this blockade of wooden Union warships is to build our own ironclad. So what they did was they um, took the wreck of the Merrimack and uh, uh, on top of the below water portion of the hull, they built a casemate or essentially an armored structure that had angled sides and was armored by, get this, ripping up railroads and stacking the rails along the sides of the ship. Um, hmm. Because the South did not have heavy industry, almost all of their ironclad warships were armored in this fashion, which was a little counterproductive because it meant that they were ripping up their railroads, which was also important infrastructure. So they uh, got started on this project and um, they armed her with some of the weapons that they had salvaged from the Norfolk raid. So her armament um, was six nine-inch Dahlgren guns, two 6.4-inch Parrot rifles, and a seven-inch, actually Brook rifles, excuse me, and a seven-inch gun fore and aft. So uh, this ship that was built as part of this conversion effort is, there's, there's some misnomers about this. You always hear about the Monitor and the Merrimack, and so people always call the ship the Merrimack. Now, originally, she had been called the Merrimack when she was a steam-powered frigate, but officially her name in Confederate service was the CSS Virginia, so we're going to call her the Virginia from now on. So, of course, this is going on, and the Union gets wind of this, and they realize that this ironclad warship, which is also equipped with a ram, is a major threat to the Union blockading forces. And so Gideon Wells, who's the Secretary of the Navy under President Abraham Lincoln, realizes the need to quickly respond to this threat. So he puts together what's called the Ironclad Board. And it's a group of people trying to figure out what to do. They end up um, deciding to build Ironclad warships for the Union Navy. And they consider, I believe, 17 different designs. And they end up narrowing it down to three initial prototype ships which are going to be built. The first one is called the USS Galena. She is essentially a small steam sloop. And she also has rail-like armor. As far as I know, they actually weren't ripped up railroad tracks like the Confederate ships, but it was a similar rail design. Um, and then the, the next one is one of my favorite ships. The most conservative design of the three uh, was a ocean-going steam-powered frigate. Um, and she was heavily inspired by and partially based on the French Gloire design that I previously mentioned. She was armed with 14 11-inch Dahlgren guns, four heavy rifles. I believe there were 250-pounder Parrot rifles and two 50-pounder Parrot rifles um, and a 12-pound howitzer. This became the most formidable and powerful warship in the Union fleet. Um, and they wanted to name her the Constitution in honor of the original frigate USS Constitution, a.k.a. the Old Ironsides. 
But it turned out that the old Ironsides was in fact still in commission. And so they couldn't have two ships with the same name. So she was named the USS New Ironsides. Um, <laughs> in this case, because she quite literally had iron sides. She had 4.5 inch iron armor plating over her entire gun casemates and along her waterline. And she had three inch armor below the waterline and two and a half inch armor on her bulkheads. So this was a powerful ship. She wasn't particularly fast. Her top speed was seven knots. Um, but um, this was definitely the most powerful warship that the Union fleet possessed. The third ship, however, was far more innovative and would become pretty legendary. So a Swedish-American inventor named John Erickson got wind of this contest that was being held to, to get together some ironclad designs, and he submitted his own proposal for a revolutionary warship. Um, and his design had so many in, unique features that actually it had 40 patented uh, inventions incorporated wow. into the design of the ship. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, the most famous of which was the rotating gun turret. So gun turrets were being simultaneously considered as, an, as a design on both sides of the Atlantic. The British were also working on their own design. But um, this one that we're going to talk about now was the first one to actually uh, be implemented. And the idea behind this was that up until this point, all the ships in the Union fleet and around the world had fixed gun emplacements, uh, usually along the sides of the ship, maybe one or two in the bow and the stern. And you had to move the ship in order to aim the guns. You had to turn the ship or whatever. Which um, made them horribly inaccurate for any sort of ranged fight. Right. It also meant that it was pretty inefficient because at any one time, unless you were fighting stuff on both sides, you, half of your guns weren't being used. So... Um, it wasn't really a, a super efficient design, but it's just kind of the way it had always been done. Erickson realized, wait a second, uh, if we have a rotating gun turret on the ship, then we could fire the guns in any direction. And then we don't have to move the ship in order to aim the guns. And so we can be much more accurate. His other big um, thing that he was trying to do was to greatly reduce the overall profile of the ship above the water. So it would present a much smaller target to the enemy. And so in order to do this, he completely eliminated sails. This ship was completely steam powered. Uh, one of the first warships to, to do that um, and uh, had an extremely low freeboard. And when I say freeboard, that means how much of the hull is above the water. I think the freeboard was something like a foot on this ship. It was really, really small. Whoa. So um, anyway, he submits this revolutionary design and the ironclad board looks at it and goes, this is crazy. I don't think, you know, do you really think this is going to work? And Erickson promised, he then says, I, I swear to you that if you select this design, I will have the ship completed in 100 days. And they said, okay, if you promised, we'll, we'll sign off on it. And 101 days later, the USS Monitor is ready to go, um, which I thought was pretty impressive. Uh, the ship was named the Monitor because she was designed to teach the South a lesson. Uh, that's where that name came from. Hmm. So anyway, this was kind of a secret project at the time. Uh, the Monitor, I believe, was the first of the three initial ironclads to be ready for service. The Galena came next and the new Ironsides was the last, presumably because it was the largest. Um, and so what this sets the stage for the first clash of ironclads in history, which is pretty important. So the, the next thing that happens, and obviously there's a, a number of other battles going on, but we're going to kind of jump ahead to this particular conflict. Hampton Roads is the area around Norfolk, Virginia. It's a strategic area. Um, eventually, if you go further inland, it leads to the Potomac River. 
And so, and also to several other rivers, the James and Elizabeth River in particular that go into the interior of Virginia. So this was a very um, strategic area. And the Hampton Roads Blockading Squadron was one of the most powerful squadrons in the U.S. Navy at the time. It included two steam frigates, the USS Roanoke and the USS Minnesota, which were sister ships of the Merrimack, the original Merrimack. It also had two sailing frigates, the USS St. Lawrence and the USS Congress, both of which were powerful 60-gun frigates that were essentially a um, kind of an expansion and improvement on the design of the original USS Constitution. And then the fifth ship in the force was the USS Cumberland, uh, which was the ship that had escaped from the Norfolk Navy Yard. And she actually had originally been built as a frigate, but had been converted into a sloop using a process called razzying, where they cut off the, the top deck, essentially. So this was a powerful force. The Virginia comes out to fight this force. And no one's really sure how this is going to go, because this is the first time in the Union that a, uh, an iron warship has gone up against the, a, a wooden warship. So the first ship that the Virginia attacks is the Cumberland. And the Virginia proceeds to ram the Cumberland with her iron beak that's on the front of the ship and carves a huge gash into the side of the Cumberland. The Cumberland was a powerful warship. She was armed with 22 nine-inch guns, but her guns were unable to penetrate the iron casemate of the Virginia. And uh, she was rammed with six knots speed by the Virginia. Um, so the Cumberland began to sink. Now, I am personally somewhat proud of the Cumberland because as she sank, she fired a broadside. Um, so basically each gun before it went underwater got off one last shot at the Virginia. So the Cumberland did not go down without a fight, but down she went. So next, the uh, Virginia decides to go after the Congress, which is the next closest ship. And uh, I believe what happened was that the Virginia's ram broke off in the Cumberland, so she was unable to do the ramming attack on the Congress. So instead what she did was she heated up her cannonballs in a furnace and fired red-hot rounds at the Congress, which then promptly caught on fire. I want to know um, how they got them from, you know, say, probably the engine room uh, to then uh, get them in the cannons. Yeah, yeah, I know. And and it did to make matters worse for the poor Congress, the Congress had run aground <laughs> off of Newport News, so she was unmaneuverable. Now, what's really interesting about this is that Captain Buchanan of the Virginia had a younger brother who was an officer on the Congress. Um, so, you know, this was kind of a family affair. Uh, what ended up happening was after two broadsides, the, um, actually, yeah, so um, after two broadsides, the Congress decided to strike her colors and surrender to the Virginia. But then there were U.S. troops that were ashore, and then they opened fire on the Virginia. And this got Buchanan so mad that he then broke the truce and opened fire on the Congress again. Um, and uh, set the Congress on fire. The Congress ended up exploding, um, but Buchanan was shot in the leg during this phase of the battle. So um, by already two powerful Union warships have been destroyed. By this point, I believe it's like the end of the day, so the Virginia decides to retreat and then come back the next day. Um, unfortunately, the USS Minnesota which was the steam-powered frigate and the Mary Back's former sister ship, had also run aground. And um, 
To make matters worse, the other powerful steam frigate, the Roanoke, apparently had some engine problems and literally couldn't get herself over to the battle area. So this was kind of a really another really bad day for the Union Navy. So the Minnesota is aground, the Roanoke's having engine trouble, and the St. Lawrence is also a, a steam a, a sail-powered ship. And frankly, after the previous day's performance, everybody knows that none of them are going to last very long against the Virginia. So everybody's trying to everybody's at this point really freaking out. Um, apparently Lincoln was trying to decide what to do in case the Virginia ended up sailing up the Potomac and bombarding Washington. This was a, a legitimate concern. Um, other people thought that the Virginia was going to uh, escape to the open sea and then attack New York. That was one of the uh, things people were concerned about. So there were all these frantic telegrams flying around the country, people saying, you know, basically hide your wives, hide your kids, the Virginia is coming. Um, so not a good day. However, the monitor is on the way. So the monitor is dispatched to uh, join the Hampton Roads squadron. And on the way to the area, she actually almost sinks because of a bad storm. Apparently her captain, Captain Warden, didn't trust the seal between the gun turret and the deck. And so he actually had the gun turret raised slightly and then filled in the gaps with something called oakum, which is like a sealing material. But apparently the waves knocked the oakum away and then all the water poured in between the gap um, between the turret and the deck. It also poured in through the funnel and nearly extinguished the ship's engines. Apparently, um, the engine fumes from the nearly extinguished engines then knocked out the entire engine room crew. It, it was a complete mess. The ship was nearly sunk, but they managed to keep the ship afloat. And then the next day, they are, or later, you know, that, that next night, essentially, they show up at Hampton Roads. And at this point, everybody's anxiously waiting for the Virginia. The Minnesota at this point is still aground, so the monitor pulls up next to the Minnesota and waits. Now, the monitor is only armed with two 11-inch guns, which doesn't seem like a whole lot. But if you have a rotating turret where you can aim them wherever, that really evens up you know, the match. So the next day, the Virginia shows up, ready to kill the Minnesota and head straight for her. But then her crew spots a weird-looking ship next to the Minnesota, and they all go, what on earth is that? And so at the time, I believe somebody said that one of the Virginia crew compared the monitor's design to a cheese box on a raft. <laughs> um, and they had no idea what this thing was until it started shooting at them. Uh, and they're like, okay, what is this? What ends up happening is the famous Battle of the Ironclads, um, which lasted for, I believe, four hours between these two ships, hammering it out at each other. The monitor managed to fire 41 shots and hit the Virginia 20, 20 times, and the Virginia hit the monitor 22 times. Neither ship received serious damage in the course of this battle. I believe the Virginia's smokestack was shot away, but other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of you know, critical damage. The worst thing that happened to the monitor was her pilot house, which is a small pillbox on the deck, was hit by a Confederate um, round, which temporarily blinded the monitor's captain. Um, but, um, they, uh, basically duked it out for four hours. It was inconclusive. Uh, mind you, neither of these ships are very maneuverable. I read that apparently it took the Virginia half an hour to turn around. Um, so, uh, wow. you know, this, this wasn't exactly a, a dog fight, but these two ships, you know, hammered it out with each other for four hours and then the Virginia ended up retreating. So the monitor saved the day. Um, Tactically, this was, I guess, a, a, a Union victory because the Virginia's goal of um, escaping was denied. 
but the Union, of course, took a lot of severe damage in this battle. They lost two major warships. So um, let's call it a draw. But, yeah, it was basically a draw. But strategically, the South's goal of breaking the blockade was not met. So at, at the end of the day, the Monitor succeeded in her mission. Now, neither of these ships ended up playing a very significant role in the rest of the war. Uh, I think later, and this, this battle occurred in 1862, in March of 1862. Shortly after this battle, the Virginia was actually uh, driven up the river and was about to be captured by the Union Army, so the Confederates blew it up. The Monitor ended up sinking in another, excuse me, another storm, um, not a whole lot later. But both of them set the pattern for the design of the warships on the opposing sides. And the Confederates would build, I think, several dozen additional ironclads based on the Virginia's design. And the Union, after the success of the Monitor, essentially began mass producing these things. I believe by the end of the war, the Union fleet had in commission over 65 Monitors. Um, so they, they went to town on this. Um, I, and I have to double check if that number is all Union ironclads or if it's just the Monitor types, because there were a few other types of warships that were built as well. Um, but they started essentially mass producing these things and they got significantly larger and carrying larger guns as well. Um, some of them carried 15 inch guns. Um, there was some of them had two turrets instead of one. Uh, and then the most extreme example was that the Roanoke, which was one of the ships that was at Hampton Roads but couldn't get across the bay and the Mary Max former sister was converted into an ocean going three turret monitor uh, by the Union. She didn't end up doing a whole lot, but um and then the, the largest ones that were built uh, were built in 1864. They had interesting names. I'm not sure if either of these names would be used now by the Union Navy. Uh, they were the USS Dictator and the USS Puritan. Yeah, probably uh, not. Puritan. Yeah, so um, especially the Dictator. So anyway, um, there were a whole bunch of other classes. There was the, the Catskill class. There was the Canonicus class. There was the Passaic class. There was the Klamath class, the Kickapoo class, the Anandaga class, the Dictator class. I mean, there were a whole bunch of different monitors that were built. Um, and these ships ended up forming the backbone of the U.S. blockading fleet. So that was kind of the first initial conflict involved with the blockade. Um, but... Uh, Blockades are often run, and so the Confederates had what are called blockade runners, which were fast and somewhat stylish paddle steamers that managed to get out through the blockade and get to England. Um, and also there were the Confederate raiders. The Confederate raiders caused a lot of damage to Union shipping throughout the war. The most famous action between ships involving these raiders was the duel between the Alabama and the Kearsarge. The Kearsarge was a U.S. Uh, sloop which ended up tracking down the Alabama to the coast of France, and they engaged in a duel. Um, this was kind of the last big one-on-one -on -one ship duel that the U.S. Navy fought. It was kind of a throwback to an earlier era. There was a lot of kind of chivalry touches involved with this. I think letters were exchanged before the battle, um, you know, stuff like that. It was kind of similar to an 1812-type action. The Kearsarge had several key advantages over the Alabama, though. The Alabama had been out at sea for a long time, and was kind of in, in bad shape. The Kearsarge was newer and um, in better condition. She also had what was called chain armor. So they essentially hung uh, nets of chain over the side of the ship, which kind of gave some ironclad type protection, whereas the Alabama was a wooden warship. The Kearsarge ended up defeating the Alabama. I think the Alabama sank. Um, and so Kearsarge became a famous name in the US fleet as well. 
the battleship Kearsarge, a pre-dreadnought, was the only U.S. battleship not to be named for a state, and she was named in honor of that ship. So that was kind of an interesting trivia. Um, the new Ironsides, which I mentioned before, um, as one of the other early ironclads, became kind of the flagship of the blockading force off of Charleston. And she was involved in several bombardments against Charleston, particularly Fort Sumter. She was also involved much later toward the end of the war in the uh, attacks on Fort Fisher, which opened up Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, as, and, and captured it for the Union. Uh, over the course of her career, I, I read that the new Ironsides was hit several hundred times by heavy artillery ammunition from Confederate batteries, but never took significant damage. So um, it was a tough ship, kind of validated the design. Uh, she was one of the few uh, kind of true ocean-going ironclads commissioned by the Navy. The disadvantage of the Monitor, although it had um, you know, a very low profile and was difficult to hit, was that because it had the low freeboard, it was really not an ocean-going ship, mm -hmm. um, as we already saw with the, the storm damage. The British kind of counted on this because there was still tension between the Royal Navy and the U.S. And I think the British thought that they were pretty safe from these monitors. After the war, we made a point of sending the double turret monitor USS Miantimo across the Atlantic to England on a diplomatic visit. And uh, much to everybody's shock, it made it across the Atlantic. And so then the British were like, oh, wait, maybe things can make it out here. We better be a little more careful. Um, so that was kind of an interesting footnote. So um, the other thing that was going on, though, uh, was that the Union was planning to split the Confederacy in half. And Wade's going to talk about this more in just a second. Um, but in order to do this, you would have to force your way up the Mississippi. And at the base of the Mississippi, of course, is the famous city of New Orleans. New Orleans at the time was the most populous city in the Confederacy. Um, and... Uh, taking this would be no mean feat. The person in charge of um, this force was a famous admiral, Admiral Farragut, who you may have heard of before. Um, admiral Farragut actually got his start in the U.S. Navy as a midshipman on board the frigate USS Essex during the War of 1812. Um, he fought the British in the Pacific, and then uh, by this point was, I believe, a commodore, and then later became an admiral of the fleet. So uh, he was a major figure in U.S. naval history. So he then uh, is sent to attack New Orleans with his powerful fleet, which includes the following vessels. He has the Cayuga, the Pensacola, the Mississippi, the Oneida, the Varuna, the Katahdin, the Kineo, the Wissacron, the Hartford, the Brooklyn, the Richmond, the Sciota, the Iroquois, the Kennebec, the Panola, the Itasca, the Winona, and the Delta. His flagship, of course, is the Hartford. The Hartford was a steam-powered sloop, very famous ship. Um, she actually survived well, I think, into the 20th century as a museum ship before she ended up being scrapped, which was a real shame. Um, she also had, There were also some other famous ships in this fleet. The uh, Confederates have a number of other vessels that they're trying to use to defend New Orleans, most famously the Manassas, which was referred to as a midget ram. Uh, the Manassas was a essentially a smaller version of the Virginia, uh, but she was unable to stop the Union fleet from attacking New Orleans. So uh, that was the very beginning of the River Campaign, which we'll cover in just a moment. The last real major battle that we need to talk about um, on the, uh, the seaboard side is the Battle of Mobile Bay. 
And uh, this is one of the last major confrontations between the union. I was Navy wondering if you were going to bring that up. Yeah, we're going to this. This is important because it says some, some famous lines in it. Before we get to that, a couple of other interesting uh, technology developments. The both the Confederates and the Union started to develop submarines during the Civil War. Uh, the most famous of these submarines is the Hunley. Uh, the Hunley was developed by the Confederates. It was actually built out of a boiler tube and was powered by a group of guys who would hand turn the propeller from within. Um, so this was really not that a great- sounds uh, scary as all get out. It was, it was pretty hokey, yeah. Um, so an earlier one, they actually had an even earlier design called the, the David, I think. Um, and, uh, or actually I believe it, 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 I've, I've seen, um, there's actually two different Davids. So the original David was named cause it was supposed to fell Goliath, the union fleet. Um, she managed to put a 65 pound torpedo into the new iron size, which temporarily disabled it. Um, but the explosion also took out the submarine. <laughs> so, um, that, you know, was a mixed success, I would say. And when we say torpedo, this is not the type of weapon that you think of from, you know, World War II and stuff. It was not a self-propelled torpedo. This is what's referred to as a spar torpedo. And a spar torpedo is where you essentially put a bomb on the end of a stick and then put the stick on the front of your ship. Oh, yeah, that um, sounds great. You, yeah, and then you ram uh, the other ship with it. And so early submarine warfare was carried out using spar torpedoes, um, not with a whole lot of success. The Hunley um, had... So I, I, so as I mentioned, she, her hull was built out of an old boiler. Um, there were eight guys inside hand cranking the propeller. Um, I believe her, the, her initial sea trials were a disaster. Her entire crew and her designer drowned. Um, she then had four additional sea trials, which also killed people. And uh, finally they decided to just use it anyway. So she, uh, rammed her spar torpedo into a U.S. sloop, the USS Housatonic. And um, the Housatonic was sunk, but it also sank the Hunley. But this has the distinction of being the first warship to be sunk by a submarine. So that was historic for a variety of reasons. The uh, Confederates also used what are called, the other term that was called torpedoes uh, actually were really more like mines. Um, they were basically barrels filled with explosives that were set in various places. Um, so there were a lot of interesting technologies that were being considered uh, for the first time during this time period. I mentioned that the U.S. is worried about um, France and England intervening in the war. And um, interestingly, only one country basically promised to back up the U.S. if uh, Britain and France got involved. And believe it or not, that country was Russia. Um, Russia didn't really want to see a lot, uh, a lot of British influence in the Americas at this time. And so the Russians sent a powerful naval force to the United States. It, I think it went both to New York and to San Francisco, essentially on a, uh, a uh, moral support tour. And this was designed to kind of send a message to the, the British that if um, they tried anything, that Russia would get involved. So for once, Russia actually had our backs, which is kind of unusual. So um, we can be grateful for that. So the last thing I'm going to talk about today is the Battle of Mobile Bay. Mobile was, I believe, one of the last major ports to stay open uh, to the Confederacy. And so this was important for the Union to capture 
Uh, this by this point is July 1864. So we're getting towards the end of the war. Um, and uh, Farragut is given a very powerful fleet. His flagship is the Hartford, which I mentioned before. He has seven other steam sloops, three double-ended gunboats, three light gunboats, the ocean-going monitor Manhattan, and the twin turret monitors Chickasaw and Winnebago. Um, so he has a, a pretty powerful fleet. He also has some additional monitors, which uh, show up later, one of which is the Tecumseh. We'll talk about that one in a second. So he uh, decides to do a double line. So he puts his ironclads in front of his wooden warships and then decides to run them both into the harbor. The uh, Confederates, though, of course, are not planning to give this one up without a fight. Uh, they have some significant forces in the area, the most famous of which is their ironclad, the Tennessee. And I believe the Tennessee was one of the most powerful ironclads constructed by the Confederates. And in this battle, her captain is Captain Buchanan, the same guy who was in charge of the Virginia during the Battle of Hampton Roads against the Monitor. So um, there's kind of a, a rematch going on here, so to speak, although Farragut was not himself at um, the uh, Hampton Roads battle. So this leads to a very early moment in the battle, which is quite famous. So the USS Brooklyn is leading the Union line, and the Brooklyn notices that there are some mines floating in the water, which, as I mentioned at the time, were called torpedoes. So the Brooklyn um, basically uh, notices that this is happening. At the same time, the Tecumseh, which is one of the monitors in the fleet, armed with two 15-inch guns, hits a mine and sinks. So, you know, it's clear that these mines are a threat. The Brooklyn just tries to veer out of the way to avoid hitting these things. And then this causes some confusion in the fleet formation. And so the Brooklyn um, is trying to figure out what to do. Farragut is very frustrated by this. And so he's, he yells. Uh, so first, first of all, I'll mention that Farragut was a real go-getter and kind of a lead from the front kind of guy. So he actually lashed himself into the rigging of the Hartford so that he could get a better view of the battle and so he could be fully visible to his crew. Um, so he was like right in the line he's of got fire. Guts. So he's, that. Yeah, so he's seeing all this going on. And so he sees the Brooklyn veering out. And so he literally like cups his hands and yells to the Brooklyn. He says, Captain Drayton, go ahead and then wait for it. Here's the famous line. He says, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Um, and so that's become a very famous line for the U.S. Navy. Um, and what he's actually talking about with these torpedoes is these mines, not what we think of now as like self-propelled torpedoes. But anyway, uh, this kind of whips the Union fleet back into shape um, and they decide to proceed. Um, what ends up happening is the Tennessee, the Confederate flagship, ends up in a point blank duel with the Hartford. Um, but unlike Hampton Roads, this is not really on the um, Confederates' side here in terms of how this is going to go. At this point, <laughs> the, the one ship, the Tennessee, is up against three Union monitors and 14 other ships. Um, so you can kind of imagine how this goes. Um, apparently, the Tennessee decided to attack anyway, and Farragut, when he saw it coming, said, I didn't think old Buchanan was such a fool. Um, he uh, that so the uh, I guess um, Farragut then ordered the steam sloops, the wooden ships, to ram the Tennessee. So the Tennessee gets rammed in succession by the Monongahela, the Lackawanna, and the Hartford. Um, and uh, at this point, it's just a complete mess. Um, so 
there's this this pounding and pounding and pounding of uh, of these ships against the Tennessee. One of the Union monitors, the Chickasaw, is a two turret monitor, and she basically pulls up behind the, the Tennessee and goes to town. Um, and at this point, the Tennessee finally uh, finally surrenders, and uh, Mobile is lost. So uh, this ended up sealing Alabama to the blockade. The mines were a problem. Actually, six more Union ships in the area were lost to the mines. The forts, uh, there were three different forts in Mobile, Fort Powell, Fort Gaines, and Fort uh, Morgan. They all eventually were lost to the Union fleet. Uh, so they did end up finally getting Mobile, but it wasn't easy. A last little anecdote is an ex another example of the crazy tactics of the Civil War. Uh, the, the Confederates at this point in Virginia, we're trying to figure out what to do. In the Roanoke River, they built a another ironclad called the Albemarle. Um, the Albemarle is, in my opinion, one of the cooler-looking Confederate ironclads. I just thought it was kind of a nice design. Uh, she ends up um, winning some initial battles against the blockading fleet. And so this guy, Cushing, decides, William B. Cushing, a commander, decides to try to get rid of the Albemarle. And this, I think, has to be the nuttiest idea ever but it worked he took a dinghy a 30-foot launch put a 29-foot spar on front of it with a spar torpedo so basically if you can imagine a rowboat with a bomb on a stick on the end he then proceeds to uh take this ship which i think is somehow actually steam powered it's a it's a steam powered launch and they uh they show up and um, attack the Albemarle. So the Albemarle was, was moored at her berth, and uh, the launch drove the spar torpedo right into the ironclad, and um, the Albemarle's guns opened fire on the launch. Only Cushing managed to get away, and one other guy. So two guys got away. The Albemarle blew up. The, of course, the little boat was lost, and um, he became one of the national heroes. Uh, he uh, got $56,000, in prize money for sinking the Albemarle, which was a lot of money back then. Um, but uh, he later went insane in, 1860, in 1874. I would argue that maybe he had already been insane when he decided to attack the Albemarle, but you know, that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. We've, so anyway. Um, <laughs> we've already established that sailors are a bit nutty. Yeah, so in, in him, him uh, in particular. So anyway, the last big battle was Fort Fisher. We kind of already talked about that with um, the New Ironside. So that was the last major operation on the, the sea coasts. Uh, there was kind of an end game at Richmond. There were several additional Confederate ironclads in the Richmond area that kind of were involved in the last stand of the Confederacy. Um, but all in all, I think this gives you a pretty good idea of what was going on um, in the war at sea. As I mentioned, the last ship of the Confederacy was the Shenandoah sometimes called the Ghost Raider. She left England in 1864. She raided um, whaling vessels in the Bering Sea. So this was way away from where, you know, normally this was going on. Interestingly, since my family's from San Francisco, this ship was actually threatening San Francisco at one point and Fort Point, which was the main fortification of San Francisco, uh, mobilized to try to drive it off. And that was the only time that Fort Point actually was in like anywhere close to a battle situation. Uh, the ship did end up eventually surrendering um, in November 1865. Um, and uh, some of her ships were actually captured 
after the war was over, which led to some more tension between the U.S. and the British. Um, she was eventually surrendered to the U.S. government and then was sold to the Sultan of Zanzibar. So uh, hmm. thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway, um, that's that's it for the uh, war on the high seas, but it's not it for the war in the interior. So we're going to hear about all the stuff that was going on in the rivers, which was quite a lot. Yeah, and I don't think I can even summarize it without going to all sorts of detail. I mean, Will, you you summarized it in 40 minutes, and there's still so much we could have said. I mean, a Confederate, oh, a yeah. Confederate vessel in the Bering Sea? I'm just... I'm scratching my head on that one, but um, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to tell y'all a little story about the plan to split the Confederacy in half. Now, let's keep in mind a little bit of what the uh, about what the Union Army, well, the Union and the Confederacy had. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have uh, they didn't have email. The only main communication over distance that you had was either obviously courier that had been standard uh, standard operating procedure in, uh, in war for centuries. And now we had Telegram. But Telegram obviously needs uh, a wire that's connecting two locations. And it still didn't work very well for crossing rivers. In that case, you needed some sort of, uh, I guess you could say, manned communication network. And also... The rivers of the of the United States were the absolute lifeblood of the country uh, at this point. Railroads were still fairly new to the United States at this point. Up until, I believe, just post-war of the Civil War, there were no railroads that bridged the Mississippi, if I remember correctly. Uh, one of the few first ones was the one actually at Moline Rock Island uh, in Illinois, and eventually, you know, you had the Transcontinental Railroad and all that. Um, Abraham Lincoln was actually one of the driving forces of getting that built because he knew, obviously, after he's reelected, he uh, is looking to a post-war situation because it's pretty obvious that he's uh, that the war is coming to an end at that point. He needs to start thinking about how the country is going to be built and rebuilt. So, um Anyway, we're not talking about railroads. That was a side note. But in this case, um, the rivers really are the lifeblood. And before railroads, there was canals and canals and canals and canals. There's one that actually I cross uh, quite regularly uh, near here in St. Louis. And it's dry for the most part. It's probably been levied up on both sides. But it's still uh, very obvious that this was a canal that people would use to cross from river to river. So it's quite impressive, the transportation network that was built across the United States uh, before railroads even existed. Now, this gave a interesting, how can I put it, almost guerrilla-style warfare at, uh, on the water for the, uh, for the U.S. Navy as they were trying, uh, along with the Army, to split the Confederacy in half. And like I said, this is to deprive them of communication, but also to deprive them of resources. Um, just to the west of uh, the Mississippi, of course, you've got uh, you know, Louisiana, Arkansas, uh, but the key one is Texas. If you deprive Texas to the, uh, to the Confederacy, you're losing a lot of manpower, 
you're losing a lot of resources and you're just losing basically the, I guess you could say also the morale of the Confederacy. So this was a key goal uh, to split the Confederacy in as many pieces as possible and then kind of just fill in the gaps. Uh, that was the that was the overall plan. But where there are rivers, there's going to be uh, there's going to be fighting. So the idea was was to sail down from Illinois and to basically spread out into the uh, into the rivers and into the tributaries of those rivers and really start rooting out Confederate presence all along uh, the rivers and. One of the more interesting ships that would be involved in this uh, in this campaign down the Mississippi and and the Ohio River, believe it or not, um, was the USS Cairo. And yes, I did not mispronounce that. It is the USS Cairo. Um, it is a it is named after a city in southern Illinois, and that is literally how they pronounce it. And you will get very very cross with that person. If you say it like how in Egypt it would be Cairo, uh, so don't do it. Um, so <laughs> Cairo is kind of almost like uh, the ironclad warships that Will was mentioning in miniature, uh, or Cairo. I see, I just did it right there. Uh, so uh, Cairo uh, was a tiny ship. Uh, well, by today's standards, she's tiny. A, she was 175 feet long and a beam of 51 feet. So she was wide compared to her length. Now, this was pretty yeah. standard for ironclad warships at the time because they were relatively well armed for their for their size, which meant that they had to have the stability in order to fire. And also for river campaigns, it's uh, it's more important to actually have your weight spread out over a wide area. So that way the draft of your ship can be as shallow as possible because the last thing you want to do in a river is run aground, especially because as Will uh, already established, these ships weren't very maneuverable. So you had to kind of keep that in mind as you were sailing up and down the rivers. You had to kind of, it's almost like chess. You had to plan your moves two or three, uh, two or three moves in advance. So that made things interesting. Anyway, the Cairo uh, was one of the first ironclad warships uh, that the U.S. built, but she was uh, she was part of, uh, like I said, the river campaigns. And one of the first ones that she was involved in, she had a relatively short life, but it was definitely interesting to say the least. And in June 1862, uh, she was actually part of the uh, the capture of Fort Pillow on the Mississippi, and I can't believe there is a fort named Pillow. Uh, so there was a massacre there. Yeah, it was pretty infamous. Yeah, and uh, ultimately this led uh, led to the capture of the city of Memphis, which would make the the state of Tennessee um, sort of start leaning towards the uh, towards the Union. I mean, it's uh, Memphis was. Not like it is today, but obviously it was a pretty big town. Uh, and uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, and eventually West Virginia were considered the the border states uh, between the uh, between the two countries. And it was absolutely vital that these states uh, would either be kind of persuaded over to the Union side, or at least 
uh, be neutralized. In this case, I think Tennessee was neutralized. Now, K-Rose, I guess you could say claim to fame, uh, was part of what was called the Yazoo Pass Expedition. And this was, oh man, this was nutty. And this just goes to show how the Union's uh, early military campaigns throughout 1862 and most of 1863 was, how could I put this, a mess. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the U.S., uh, the or I should say the Union military was not known for great military officers. I mean, how many generals did uh, did Lincoln go through before he landed on Uly Ulysses S. Grant? Quite a few. I don't know exactly how yeah, many. Yeah, but uh, lots of incompetence, a lot of people that thought they were bigger than their britches. Um, so ultimately, the, uh, the Yazoo Pass expedition was in Mississippi, and it was designed to take the city of Vicksburg away from the uh, from the Confederates, and then create a clear path down to New Orleans. So this was a big deal. They needed uh, Vicksburg in order to get down to New Orleans because if you don't, then you're going to have Confederates chopping on your heels all the way down uh, down to New Orleans. It just that was unacceptable. Um, now, getting back to the Cairo, she actually was not Navy, believe it or not. Um, I, 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 had to, I had to do a serious double take in my research, guys, but the Cairo was actually operated by the U.S. Army. Uh, she was... Yeah, that's right. Um, and though she was, I guess you could say, rented or I guess you could say borrowed, uh, by the U.S. Navy in some ways, uh, but uh, ultimately she was part of officially the U.S. Uh, the Union Army's Western Gunboat Flotilla, and uh, ultimately she was part of the campaign at the U Yazoo Pass expedition, which, like I said, was a bit of a mess. Um, and she would be led into this uh, into this battle by a man by the name of Andrew Hull Foot. And I don't know what it is about the Civil War, but it seems like with their with their middle names, it hardly makes any sense. Uh, like they're they're I don't know. They got creative with uh, with names, but in any case, the uh, <laughs> uh, the K row was slow, very slow. Like we were talking about seven knots uh, earlier being slow. She had a top speed of four knots, uh, so. Um, yeah, the Tennessee could go three knots. So yeah, these were not no, fast ships. No, not at all. Uh, and she also used railroad iron for her casemate, uh, which was the uh, the slanted uh, the slanted um, uh, armor on the sides of the ship, and that served a practical purpose because remember we're still using cannonballs pretty much at this point, and if a cannonball hits an angled surface, it can't transfer all of its momentum into one uh into one point so it kind of gets deflected uh one way or another so that was kind of the idea but yeah railroad iron she used uh so pretty impressive and at the time of her engagement she was uh engagement with the azu uh pass expedition she was armed with three eight inch smooth bores three 42 pounder rifles six 32 pounder rifles one 30-pounder rifle, and one 12-pounder rifle. 
keep in mind that rifle and smoothbores, they are both just different types of cannons. Uh, so um, even though we think of rifle as like a handheld gun, that's not what we're talking about here. These are all cannons um, or a version, uh, a version of that. So, yeah, the difference being that smoothbores don't have rifling on the inside of the barrel, whereas rifles did. That's, that's absolutely. The uh, so the uh, the Cairo sails down and she is part of a group of eight gunboats. Uh, and there was actually a group of ships that were called Rams. I wish I could find a little more information about uh, them. But thanks to the Internet being weird, I can't do some impromptu research. I really wish I could. Uh, anyway, um, the uh, the Cairo and the other gunboats sail down, and they are met immediately with resistance, and they have to retreat. They try to advance again. They retreat again. They advance again, and uh, when uh, when Will was mentioning what happened with the uh, with mines uh, or what were called torpedoes. Well, this would ultimately be the Cairo's fate. Um, she was actually trying to clear the river of uh, of these mines or torpedoes. I'm still having a hard time uh, reconciling that in my head. Uh, but the the Cairo ended up striking a mine, and believe it or not, it was not that she uh, you know hit it and it blew up. It was that there were Confederate soldiers on the side of the river that were waiting for the Cairo or other gunboats to come down, wait for her to get close enough. And then I'm just imagining Wiley Coyote style hitting a detonator uh, and blowing the thing sky high. <laughs> and um, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what it was. I mean, this is about the time where those kinds of detonators were actually existed and were used. Um, so uh, she, uh, she gets hit by, uh, by one of these torpedoes and believe it or not she had no casualties i uh obviously this is part of her official record but i can't find any any death records uh for the uh for the ship so i guess you could say the crew got pretty lucky um so in any case this is that uh so ultimately the U yazoo pass expedition is a failure uh and the uh, the Union has to retreat back, and ultimately um, we have to we have to try again for Vicksburg, and uh, the Army has to get has to get involved, uh, and I believe that culminates in the Battle of Vicksburg, if I remember correctly, uh, which is a little later. Yeah, um, I just like to interject one thing in here, which is it's just sure. funny to me. the 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 river campaigns had some really kooky stuff happen. Uh, early on, the Confederates un uh, actually put logs on bluffs that were designed to look like cannons, and that kept McClellan from doing anything for several months. Um, and another example, uh, during the Battle of Vicksburg, which Wade just mentioned, which is why I brought this up, um, the Indianola, which I think was one of the Cairo sister ships, managed to basically run past Vicksburg, but then got captured. And so then what Porter, the admiral in charge, did was he built a fake ironclad out of logs and barrels, put a, f a flag on it that had a skull and crossbones and a large sign that said, deluded people cave in, and then sent it floating down by Vicksburg. And apparently this scared them enough that they ended up blowing up the Indianola 
and opening fire on the fake ironclad, which wow. was kind of crazy. And then another time, the fleet ended up literally up a creek, and like the, the, the it was too shallow because the floodwaters from the rain was uh, retreating. And so they had to build a dam to get up enough water for the ships to get through. And then they had to blow up the dam and sail the ships down like through the dam that was being blown up while it was happening. Um, so, I mean, crazy, crazy stuff in this river campaign. Yeah, this is, uh, um, and just uh, just dropping a few names in this case, um, the, uh, the Yazoo Pass expedition involved two of probably the more, uh, famous names in the U.S. Army. Uh, William T. Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant were both involved uh, in this battle uh, or this expedition, I should say. Uh, so it's uh, it's pretty interesting, even though uh, us Americans love to talk up Ulysses S. Grant, especially Illinoisans like me, because we can claim him. Uh, he in in retirement, <laughs> he actually settled in Galena, Illinois, which the ship that uh, Will was talking about uh, the Galena. Uh, that's what it was named after, Galena, Illinois. Believe it or not, Galena was meant to be the huge metro metropolitan city of Illinois uh, until the need for lead dried up. That was the problem. Uh, uh, and then Chicago, of course, we we know the story from there. Um, but <laughs> in any case, the Cairo. Uh, getting back to this uh, this plucky little ship. Um, she um, kind of sinks into the mud, uh, so to speak. And uh, it, it's fascinating. They actually had to like dig up uh, dig up maps from the uh, from the Civil War come around the 1950s. And basically they were uh, they were having to dig up the ship little by little in the mud. and she was actually very well preserved. Um, it's kind of like what I imagine, kind of like fossilization beginning to beginning to happen, or something along those lines. Um, but they were able to recover quite a few things uh, from uh, from the uh, from the Cairo, and eventually they were able to raise the ship entirely. And she is part of the Vicksburg uh, National Military Park, also known as the Vicksburg National Cemetery. But unfortunately, they had to cut her into three pieces in order to bring her up. So she appears in one piece uh, in the exhibit, but she's technically in three pieces now. So that's kind of unfortunate. But at the same time, the number of ships from the Civil War um, that actually survived or even we have a piece of are really, really rare. And the Cairo is a uh, case in point. Um, these ships didn't last very long. Um, she was laid down in 1861, and by 1863, her uh, her career is over. Less less than two years uh, of service, and yeah, the um, ultimately, um, of course, the uh, of course the campaign to seize the Mississippi does succeed at that point, and then. To split the uh, to split the Confederacy again um, came uh, the infamous uh, Sherman's infamous march uh, to the sea, which uh, yeah, not our military's proudest point. Uh, can we move on? Just watch Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, this brings up an interesting question of kind of where are they now, right? Um, and obviously the Cairo is, is one, I think, the only kind of complete ironclad from the Civil War that's on display. The Monitor's turret is on display at the uh, Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. The Monitor's wreck was located in 1973, and the turret was raised. Um, so that's on display, which is kind of cool. It's actually in a big vat right now, or a tank. I think they're, they, they have to preserve it in some fluid, and they're trying to figure out how to preserve it so that it can be put out on a dry um, exhibit. But uh, the museum also has a full-scale replica of the Monitor that you can go on board. So that's their... Uh, the new Ironsides, the other ship that was my ship of the week today, um, actually caught on fire shortly after the war ended and was destroyed. So that's kind of sad. Uh, the Galena got scrapped in 1870. As for other ships that were involved in the Civil War, uh, the old Ironsides, the USS Constitution, was on the Navy list during the Civil War. As far as I know, I don't think she saw combat, um, but she's on display. And then the Constellation, a uh, sloop, is on display in Baltimore. She served in the Civil War. Um, interestingly, if you want to see examples of um, ironclads and turret ships, you can see them, but they're in other countries. There's a turret ship, the Wascar, which is on display in Peru. Um, there's another one that's on display. Actually, it might be in Chile now. I think she got captured hmm. by Chile. Yeah, so she's on display in Chile. Um, there was a whole other war that went on in the 1870s, which we might talk about at some point. Um, there's a couple on display in the Netherlands, and I think there's one on display in Belgium. So um, there are some other contemporary ships. HMS Warrior, the Ironclad Frigate, is on display in Portsmouth, uh, right next to the Victory. Um, but honestly, not a whole lot of survivors from this era in terms of museum ships. Oh. There's a lot of World War II ships, but not a I, lot from I this would era. say the 19th century as a whole is a bit of a dead zone as far as preserved uh, ships. Um, as, opposed to, yeah. as opposed to the 20th centuries where we have uh, preserved ships ad nauseum, uh, I would say, um, especially for the U.S. because we like our battleships. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in any case, um, yeah, I didn't know that about the monitor. That's uh, that's interesting. I wonder if it's just that the metal will just crumble to pieces if it's not supported in liquid. Uh, I wonder what what's up with that. Yeah, I've, it's, it's been a long time since I've been there, and I'm trying to remember exactly what they're doing. But I, I think the idea is that they're pumping a lot of mud out of the turret, oh. too. Um, so that's part of it. I think eventually the plan is to have it you know, outside on display, but um, they're, they're not there yet. The, I believe the Hunley also was located. So this is interesting. So uh, if any of you have ever read Clive Cussler novels. Didn't he have a book uh, about raising the Titanic? A, author. Yes. So he wrote the, the book Raise the Titanic was written before they actually discovered the Titanic. Um, and then it was later made into what I've heard is a very bad movie. But um, he his books are all about like maritime salvage stuff, although it usually turns into counterterrorism before the book's over. Uh, but interestingly, he actually did some of that stuff in real life. He created his own organization and they found the Hunley, um, the submarine. So um, that was kind of cool. So, you know, a lot of the stuff since a lot of these are wrecks, the wrecks still exist, but in terms of ships that are on display as museums, we don't have a whole lot of options. And you met, and you mentioned, Will, the, uh, the Raiders that were part of the, uh, part of the Confederate Navy's overall plan to, uh, to break the blockade. Um, there was yeah. actually a model of one at the library in my, in my hometown. I can't remember the name of it right now, 
but it was one of one of their more successful ones. And I remember it was really interesting because I had never seen a uh, it was still as it was a sail steamer, but it was with a propeller. Um, and I I had never seen yeah. that uh, up until that point. So it was fascinating. And the whole Civil War and really the latter half of the 19th century is just rife with ship innovations. This is probably one of the biggest yep. leaps forward in terms of uh, maritime technology, because let's not forget uh, by the end of the Civil War, we're just about 30 years out from HMS Dreadnought, the first true battleship. Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, is is uh, where some of these ships ended up. Um, so the one of the last ships that the Confederates ordered was a very advanced ocean-going ironclad battleship, essentially, called the CSS Stonewall. Named after Stonewall and, Jackson. And uh, we were really worried. Yeah, Um we were very concerned. I believe she was built in a French shipyard, I think. And we were very concerned about what was going to end up happening with this ship. Um, and uh, she still existed at the end of the war. Um, what ended up happening, she, she was sold in a diplomatic, what was called a diplomatic blind. She was sold to Denmark, but she was still flying the Confederate flag. She then went to Spain. Um, some pictures were taken of her by union ships that were in the area. Um, and then she went to Cuba uh, on her way to go join the Confederate Navy. But when she got to Cuba, she found out that the Confederacy had surrendered. And so at this point, she was then handed over to the U.S. fleet. And then you'll never guess where she ended up. After this, the U.S. decided for some reason that we didn't want this ocean going ironclad battleship that was very advanced and so we sold her to wait for it the imperial japanese navy oh, because <laughs> so i thought that was kind of interesting um an interesting thing about bringing up the uh bring up the japanese um the uh the campaign to open japan uh to the western world i believe was led by one of the descendants of oliver hazard perry if i remember correctly yeah, I think it was was it his I think it was grandson. Yeah, it's it's got to be. Uh, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, Matthew Perry was uh, yes, grandson. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah. maybe we'll talk about him at some point because the Perry the Perry family, it, there's a reason that they're called one of the dynasties of the US Navy. Um so yeah. um and of course mention that we kind of uh forced Japan uh to open their borders at gunpoint. Yeah. There's there's a lot of skeletons in the closet of the U.S. military, um, but I hope I hope this time, guys, we showed you some of the uh, the interesting both triumphs and kookiness of the of the Civil War. Um, it wasn't all the big uh, giant battles. Sometimes it was just a draw. Sometimes it sometimes it was getting stuck up a river, literally. So uh, I yep. hope you all and uh, the last. Go, I was just going to say the last little thing um, is, of course, people might wonder what happens after the Civil War in terms of the fleet. I mentioned at the beginning of the war, the Union Navy had 91 warships. By the end of the Civil War, there were over 600 in commission. Um, but yeah, but uh, most of them were pretty small and this it was drawn down pretty quickly. And actually, although you would think that the Civil War would have really kickstarted the fleet, it actually went into a long period of decline after the Civil War. Um, where it, it really kind of decayed. 
Uh, it grew pretty small. It, it, it didn't keep up with technological innovations. We were still running a lot of sail-powered warships. It got kind of a fossilized command structure. And it got to the point that by the 1880s, the Brazilian Navy was more powerful than ours. Uh, that started to change in the 1890s, which is something we'll talk about later. Um, and then eventually under one uh, Theodore Roosevelt, it began to finally uh, match the European fleets again. Fleet. But that, would, that wouldn't come for a while. Yep. So we'll cover that another time. But thank you all for listening. And, and uh, I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about one of the lesser known aspects of the Civil War, of course, which is the, the naval so campaign. So I will wish you all fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everyone.